our good God. We are grateful that your work did not end with an empty tomb. It could have. The resurrection speaks for itself. And yet you continue on. You have not left us orphaned. And you push us and empower us, energize us to live resurrection life and to share resurrection life. And so as we think about our neighbors just north of us at St. Anthony Hospital, the many, many patients who come in and out of that space, the family members who greet newborns and say goodbye to loved ones, the nurses and therapists, the doctors and surgeons, the administrators. Lord, we ask that among our neighbors at St. Anthony Hospital, your spirit would bring healing and rest and wholeness. We ask for those who live around us, who are a part of the Sosa Neighborhood Association. We ask, Lord, that you would make yourself known to them. We pray that you would bring joy into their lives. We pray that you would bring freedom. We pray for those who live just down the street on 8th Street in a sober living program for those who are coming out of incarceration. And we ask, Lord, that your spirit would lead them and guide them into a new life. We ask for our neighbors who teach and who learn at the Emerson Alternative High School. And we know that the people who are there have experienced and heard stories that are incredibly painful at times. We ask for your energy. We ask for your breath of new life to bring hope and to raise up young men and young women who others may want to give up on, to be leaders among us. We pray for the churches around us, who also preach and teach and sing and love. We ask for your good guidance, and we ask that you would enable us to partner with them, to know them, to collaborate for your kingdom mission together. We pray for our friends at the Sparrow Project and at Lovelink, in the good and compassionate ministry that they do and the way that they care for others among us, we ask that you would provide for all of their needs. And Lord, we ask for neighbors who are not quite so near for us. We ask for those who are grieving the death of 20 Nazarene spouses and pastors in Cuba churches and children, communities who have lost leaders. And even in grief, we ask, Lord, that your spirit would stir up something new and beautiful 
that you would comfort them with comfort that we don't understand. And for neighbors in Santa Fe, Texas, Lord God, we ask that you would make things right. And beyond that, we almost don't even know how to pray. We don't know how to make these things right. We ask that by the power of your Spirit, you would move and you would empower and you would heal. You would make bold your people to step forward and do whatever it is that you ask us to do. We celebrate tonight that we have not been left orphaned. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come and teach us and lead us, that you would advocate on our behalf, that we could join you in your good work, and that we would see your kingdom come in this place. This is what we ask together in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I want to invite you, if you would, to turn your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Ezekiel, chapter 37. Ezekiel is in the middle of your Bible, just like to the right. And if you do not have a Bible, but you need a Bible, just raise your hand and we have people who will lend you a Bible. If you do not own a Bible, this is yours to keep. I'll be reading out of the New Living Translation, and the Bible that they can hand to you is out of the New Living Translation as well. Ezekiel chapter 37, uh, verse 1 through verse 14. I want to invite you to stand as we honor the reading of God's Word. If you do not know where Ezekiel is, there is a table of contents at the front of your Bible, or just Google it. That's easy as well. So, hear the word of the Lord for us on this Pentecost Sunday. The Lord took a hold of me, and I was carried away by the Spirit of the Lord to a valley filled with bones. He led me all around among the bones that covered the valley floor. They were scattered everywhere across the ground and were completely dried out. Then he asked me, Son of man, or translation would be mortal, can these bones become living people again? O sovereign Lord, I I replied, you alone know the answer to that. Then he said to me, speak a prophetic message to these bones and say, dry bones, listen to the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Look, I am going to put breath in you and make you live again. I will put flesh and muscle on you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord." So I spoke this message just as he told me, and suddenly as I spoke, there was a rattling noise all across the valley. The bones of each body came together and attached themselves as complete skeletons. Then as I watched, muscles and flesh formed over the bones. Then skin formed to cover their bodies, but they still had no breath in them. Then he said to me, speak a prophetic message to the wind, son of man. Speak a prophetic message and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come, O breath, from the four winds. Breathe into these dead bodies so that they might live again. So I spoke the message as he commanded me, and breath came into their bodies. They all came to life and stood up on their feet, a great army. 
Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones represent the people of Israel. They are saying, we have become old, dry bones. All hope is gone. Our nation is finished. Therefore, prophesy to them and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. O my people, I will open your graves of exile and cause you to rise again. Then I will bring you back to the land of Israel. When this happens, O my people, you will know that I am the Lord. I will put my spirit in you, and you will live again and return home to your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken, and I have done what I said. Yes, the Lord has spoken. This is the word of God for the people of God, and let us say together, thanks be to God. You can be seated. So with its judgment and its terror and its darkness and its sorrow, Ezekiel 37 is usually a text that's read during Lent. But this year, the lectionary calls the people of God to read this passage on Pentecost. The lectionary is an interesting thing. It forces us on these high and holy days, on days like Pentecost, to immerse ourselves in the whole story of God. Not just the good parts, not just easy parts, but it invites us to immerse ourselves into the very difficult and dark parts of the scriptures as well. So the whole of the Old Testament, or what I would like to call the Jewish story, is one of exile and suffering. In, in this overarching story that is the Jewish story, there are a few times when the people of God had experienced protection and prosperity, but like most people, when they receive something good, they, they end up ruining it. So the Jewish story is one from Genesis to Malachi that's one of a struggle. It's this story of a really good God and the rebellion of God's people that eventually leads to their suffering and their death. So they act like these selfish children. They They squabble and they fight, and as time passes, the squabbling becomes more sophisticated. It leads to selfishness, envy, and greed, and then it eventually leads to devastating bloodshed. It's not very hard to see our story in the Jewish story. It, 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 It never seems that God's sovereign blessing and his protection seems, it never seems that it's enough. Time after time, the people accuse him of being weak and impotent. And later on, they do the same thing when they mock Jesus. They say, he, he, he says he can save others. Why doesn't he save himself? And the people mistook God's goodness for weakness. He, he would call them to care for others. He would call them to be generous. He would call them to regularly forgive debts that were owed them, both personal debts and these large economic debts. And they thought, there is no way to get ahead in this life with a God in charge like this. They didn't like the charity that this God called them to display, so they began to look around like a group of junior hires to the more popular crowds. The other nations, pagan as they might be, and each of those other nations had a king, a human leader, and so God's people said, we want one of those as well. And this God came along and he said, this is not a smart decision, but his answer was, okay. 
So with that, over the next several hundred years, the leadership of each king demonstrated just what a bad idea this was. In the 7th century BC, a few years before Ezekiel the prophet was born, there was this king, and his name was Manasseh, and he was the ruler over the Hebrew people in the land of Judah, where where Jerusalem was the capital. And he had come from this long line of evil rulers, but but Manasseh took the cake. He was the worst king the Hebrews ever had. He took the throne at 12 years old, and then he ruled for 55 years. He could not do enough evil. He was extremely creative. His capacity to invent new forms of evil had no end. He would force his subjects of all ages to engage in these orgies while he watched with sick delight. It was live pornography. He murdered all the temple priests and set up his shrine, set up shrines to his own glory and to the glory of the pagan gods of the nations that surrounded him. At one point, he sacrificed his own son at the temple of the Most High God as an act of sorcery and magic. He made a sport of torture and greed, and greed then became a permanent fixture in Judah. Lust controlled the hearts of the powerful as they ruled the lives and the bodies and the spirits of the vulnerable. Manasseh took wives in order to build political alliances. He uh, He started building campaigns on the backs of his own people, using them as slave labor, and he did it by overtaxing the poor, all while he lined his own pockets and the pockets of the wealthy to satisfy his political preferences. He was bad. Now, Jeremiah the prophet came along and he gave this warning. He said, listen, Jerusalem, you need to listen to me or I will turn from you in disgust, says God. Listen or I will turn you into a heap of ruins, a land where no one lives. This is nearly 20 years before Ezekiel. When Manasseh died, his son Amon took over, and people waited to see if things would get any better, but it didn't. Amon followed the ways of his father, and neither one of them nor those who followed after them listened to Jeremiah. And by the time Ezekiel was born, a couple, de- a couple decades later, the place had just fallen apart. Evil was petrified deep within the cultural psyche. Individuals held on to the greed and the lust that Manasseh had created. So the God that had once demonstrated generosity and goodness, that they had once accused of being weak and impotent and powerless, kept His promise. And He made a wide, sweeping move of judgment. This God's judgment came in a swift and a violent victory by an evil pagan nation called Babylon, and they completely destroyed Jerusalem, the city of God, and they made people watch as they burned their temple to the ground. They were there watching and experiencing the devastating reality that their very identity and their connection to their God that had protected them was no more. It was as if God had done something that God had never done before. 
He turned his back on his children by giving favor to their enemies. He gave them over to the evil that they were wanting. And if you think Manasseh was bad, the Babylonians were even worse. They were an awful people, even more awful than Manasseh or his son, Amen. Their ways were violent. Their values Their practices were sickening. Ezekiel says that Babylon became God's sword of judgment against Judah. It was as if God in God's wrath said, you asked for it, I'll give it to you. And the discipline and the judgment of this God of the Old Testament that was cast down upon them was, was brutal. They had ignored the warnings one too many times, so God gave them exactly what they wanted. I've heard people say that they don't like God very much because he doesn't give them what they want. But the Old Testament narrative would disagree. It seems to imply that, in fact, God is willing to give us exactly what we want. It seems that You know, if human beings walk down the road away from loyalty and mercy and justice, God will willingly allow them to walk as far down that road as they want to go. Even if they avoid every opportunity of good news, even if they ignore every signpost of the love of God for them, even if they ignore every opportunity to turn around, eventually what happens is this image of God with which they were created can no longer be seen in them. And finally, by their own choice, they become beings that were once human but are not anymore. So in 597... BC, several years after Manasseh's death, the Babylonians totally destroyed Jerusalem in a rage. They blinded uh, Zedekiah, who was the worst, worthless king of Judah at that time. He was an idiot. And they took the leaders of Judah east to the Babylonian capital. And Ezekiel was the, was the priest uh, and one of the people that was moved. He was chained, and then he was moved from the land of evil into a land of exile. If you read all of Ezekiel, it's not an easy read. It's not something you want to read to your children at night before bed. It's no one's favorite. It records the devastating nature of the situation. And things were so bad that in chapter 24 of Ezekiel's book, he writes about the death of his wife in these days, but he says he refuses to cry because her death was not even the worst thing he had seen. The only The only way that Ezekiel could describe the current state of affairs, this devastating situation was through this metaphor that we read today. The only way that he could sort of put words around it was through imagery. To him, it was like God forced him into the valley of death. God grabbed me, he said, and he set me down in the middle of a valley with dry bones. It was, it was as if God was going to prove that he was not impotent and he was not weak, but he was going to take up control. He says that judging God... He gives him this name, judging God, took me all the way down to the depths of sorrow to show me the place of death. And there they were, bones, dry bones, lots of bones, dry bones that were bleached in the sun. There's no life anywhere, no one left to cry. The valley 
of dry bones. Like Ezekiel, sometimes it seems that we have been born into a death-consuming world. Apartheid, genocide, bride slavery, school shootings, the family members of those that were killed in this plane crash, our family members. I wonder if the sons and the daughters and the parents, I wonder if this would be their description, this metaphor, this imagery, bones, death, sorrow, anger. I wonder if this is, 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 if this is the, the feeling of the parents who sent their kids off to Santa Fe High School but did not see them return. They, like Ezekiel, stand there with God looking over a valley of dry bones. And I'm sure, I know this because I'm a parent, I'm sure that standing over that valley of death is more difficult than being the corpse that was picked over. Many of you, this this might be the picture of your life. This is just might be how you describe your life. You feel like God has grabbed you and jerked you, uh, jerked you into the valley of dry bones, surgery and sickness. Uh, old, old age is getting you. Uh, you had to have buried a family member, financial ruin, the loss of a job, poor school resources. Watching children make terrible decisions. Being trapped emotionally by a bad experience. The valley of dry bones. Ezekiel knows how we feel. He's the only one left. He's the last of the lonely. The vision, the feeling, the thought. It's like I'm in a valley of dry bones and God brought me here. It's so horrible that even the death of my wife is not the worst thing I've experienced. The judging God seems to be extra brutal and everyone feels it. Some have argued that God has gone way overboard. The 16th century reformer Martin Luther said that, that these kinds of stories of, of God, these are like God showing his left hand. My, my uh, former pastor Dan Boone says texts like these, they show us the dark side of God. Barbara Brown Taylor calls these texts of terror. This is a text of terror. God, this judging God is not to be trifled with. I wonder, maybe even as we read this text of terror and we have experienced our own valley of dry bones, maybe, maybe deep down, like way deep down, deep, deep down in the text, in this text of terror, maybe there's just a little bit of grace. Maybe it's tucked way down in this text because you know, what a, you know what it does? It does a couple things. It gives us permission to stop being nice. I used to think God just wanted me to be nice. But, but texts like this instead invite us to be honest. The people were under the hand of judging God because they weren't honest. And I don't just mean that they didn't tell the truth. They weren't vulnerable. They weren't open to this God. They were dishonest. They were closed off. They were unavailable to his leading. And Ezekiel gives a, does us a favor by shoving us into a real honest life. We have to face the real God in this text. 
This is not a pretty scene, and it is not a pretty text, but it is a way for us to find, just a way for us to grieve, a way for us to be confused, a way for us to say that we are mad about this situation, a way for us to be scared, to say we don't like this. I heard Bono of you 2 say that the prophets of the Old Testament must be read because they are honest. And the metaphors and the imagery and the art that they, they use, the poetry of the prophets, are not just decoration. They are essential. Because human beings are dealing with death. And, we are, and so are those who are, are left at life after death occurs. Eugene Peterson says this, that these kinds of texts, they allow us to curse when cursing doesn't seem to be satisfying enough. I wonder if after the crucifixion of Jesus in a world that had gone mad with death, where there were 120 there up in the upper room, I wonder if they were reading Ezekiel 37. That while Christ was killed on this hill of murder, they must have felt like they were in a valley of dry bones. Judging God is difficult. Let's just admit it. Ezekiel does, and so we can as well. But let's, let's think for a minute, okay? Maybe there's something even deeper, something that's even farther down, something that's even richer than just we get permission to curse. Do we, do we want to really serve a God that, that is not willing to judge? I, I mean, isn't God's judgment, as, as dark as it might be in this text, could it actually be a good thing? I mean, as we as a people are faced with the violence in the Middle East or Darfur or in public schools or in, here in, in homes here in the U.S. and around the world, don't, don't we want judgment? Don't we need a judging God? Shouldn't someone come along who has the power to name evil for what it is to identify it, to point it out so that it can be dealt with and finally evil can be put to death? Don't we want somebody who can come and judge the world and then set it right? Isn't the valley sometimes better than the alternative? Could it be that Ezekiel's vision here is to invite us into uh, invite us to understand things in a whole new light like what happened on Pentecost? Because Ezekiel's message seems to indicate that God judging God, is so utterly committed to, saving, to setting the world right that in the end, the best of what God can give to a world that is bent on evil and destruction is to put it to death so that he might be able to spring it to life again. Ezekiel, along with the other prophets and the psalmists, and Jesus himself understood that God's judgment meant that God would, in the end, put all things right, straighten everything out, producing not just a sigh of relief, but a great shout of joy. Maybe judging God is the only way by which God can be saving God. By judging evil for what it is, by looking around and seeing genocide, nuclear bombs, child prostitution, the arrogance of an empire, the commodification of souls, the the idolization of a race, maybe judging God is not vengeful God, but judging God is actually generous God. 
Maybe the vision that Ezekiel sees as he looks over the valley of dry bones is a beginning of something alternative. It's something totally God-different than, than we've ever imagined before. When the people look, when people look over their own valley of dry bones in their lives, it forces them to be honest. They have to ask really hard questions. They ask questions like this, why? Who did this? How did this come about? Where is God? But you know what I find interesting in this text? With all that Ezekiel has seen and all that Ezekiel has been through and all that Ezekiel has suffered through, he is not the one who asks the questions. Instead, it is God who is the one who looks over the valley and God is the one who asks the hard questions. And the hard question is this, can these bones live? Even before the questions pour out of us in these terrible situations, God is the one who stands overlooking the valley and begins to ask the hard questions. And the difference is, our questions don't make room for hope, but God's do. Can these dry bones live? When we can't bear any more of this, the judging, saving God goes valley and ask the hard questions. He asks the life-giving questions. With God, even the valley of death that is our life becomes sacred ground. And nothing for this judging, saving God is hidden from the scrutiny of God. Nothing is exempt from the rule of God. Nothing escapes God. Nothing escapes the purposes of God. He asks here in this valley of death, What will become of it? Here in this valley of dry bones that is that person's life, what will become of her? When the sun has bleached everything dry in that man's heart, what just might become of him? Savior God doesn't just ask the questions. Sometimes God doesn't ask the questions when or how we want, but they are asked by God nonetheless. Can these dry bones live? The answer should be no, never, there's not a chance. But then in this text, the questions become an action. The invitation is extended to Ezekiel. Go ahead, Ezekiel. Tell these dry bones to live. And before his eyes, the bones begin finding themselves pulling together. Muscles and tendons are enveloped by And in one gracious, acting, move, judging, God becomes saving God by breathing life into dead corpses. And like an army of love and life, they come up off the ground and their future is hope and promise. This metaphor is about restoration. It's about God making things right. Which is what Luke tells us happened on Pentecost Sunday in that upper room. Judging, saving God demonstrates his capacity to overcome evil and the systems of death by raising Jesus and then by the power of his spirit. He looks over the valley of dry bones that were Jesus' followers and he says, what will become of them? Can you, my sons and my daughters, Be the dry bones that will live again. But instead of Ezekiel being there, this time it is a new prophet. It is 
God's Son, Jesus the Christ, who prophetically speaks life into them, and with that, the breath of life comes upon them, and they, and, and we, we become an army of love lifted up off the ground, raised to life in the middle of a valley where it is, there is nothing but suffering and a culture of death. And like those on Pentecost, we are now empowered by the very life and breath of saving, judging God to share this good news that in the name of judging God, we are saved. Evil is, is named and it is found one. It is not everywhere and it is not in everything. God determines that evil has an origin and God also determines that evil has a finish. Judging, saving God is commander. And yes, these forces of evil that we, say, that we see daily will be used to bring about good by this judging and saving God. John Holbert says this, that Pentecost is this high and holy day. But it's not just a high and holy day. It's actually a reenactment by which this judging, saving God makes his promise for a rebirth of those of us who are in a valley of dry bones, in a valley that is filled to the brim with bones. This is what we get to proclaim and be a part of today. It is the judging of this God that saved us. Would you pray with me? These texts of terror, Lord, they have the capacity to introduce us to a place and a, and a God that makes us very uncomfortable. But even this, we recognize that as judging God, we're also saving God. We ask that you would do a work of judgment for the work for the sake of salvation as we look over the valley of dry bones in our own lives. Every time we say that resurrection is all around us and new life is all around us, evil tries to raise its head and demonstrate that it is in charge. And while evil seems to be right in front of us. We know that it has a limit and resurrection never does. May this be our hope and may this be our prayer. May this be the declaration to a world in need. At the same time, judge and Savior. And Paul affirms this in 1 Corinthians Listen to this text. He said, what you must solemnly realize is that every time you come to his table and you eat this bread and every time you drink of this cup, you reenact in your words and actions the death of the master. You will be drawn back to this meal again and again until the master returns. You must never let your familiarity breed contempt. Anyone who eats the bread or drinks the cup of the master irreverently is, is like a part of the crowd that jeered and spit on him at his death. It is that kind of remembrance you want to be a part of. So examine your motives. Test your hearts. Come to this meal in holy awe. 
If you give no thought, or worse, you don't care about the broken body of the master when you eat and drink, you're running the risk of serious consequences. That's why so many of you even now are listless and sick and others have gone to an early grave. If we get this straight now, we won't have to be straightened out later. Better to be confronted by the judging, saving God now than to have his confrontation later. Communion means that this confronting, judging, savior God is here and that we confront him now and we approach him honestly about the current state of our affairs. So I want to remind you that at dinner on the night before Jesus was betrayed by those he came to save, he took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Whenever you eat it, I want you to remember me. And then in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant that comes in my blood. And whenever you drink this, I want you to do so in affectionate remembrance of me. When we receive here at this table, we proclaim this truth that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. Anyone who is open to the mercy and the grace of this judging, saving God is invited to this table. We want no barriers. We want you to come honestly. We want you to know that our bread is gluten-free and our wine is non-alcoholic. So when you come, come down our center aisle with your hands cupped. Be ready to receive that which is good and that which comes from God. Approach one of these servers. Listen to what they have to say to you. Dip the bread into the cup and be thankful. If for any reason you can't make it down our aisle, just wave at Paul and he will come and serve you. And when you are ready, my friends, please 